Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 15. My name is Larry Bernstein. Each week since the outbreak of the pandemic, I've hosted a conference call to discuss aspects of COVID-19. The discussion follows a unique format. Each speaker only gets six minutes. This keeps the conversation concise, interesting, and punchy. After everyone has had a chance to speak, there's a question and answer period. I end the session with a quick note of optimism from each speaker. On today's call, we're going to hear from eight different speakers. Our first speaker is Rob Kurzban, who is the author of the book, Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite. I asked Rob to speak about changing social norms during the pandemic, as well as why political partisanship affects our behavior with regard to the virus. The next speaker is David Stellings. I met David when our children became friends in kindergarten 14 years ago. David is a partner with Leif Cabrese, Hyman and Bernstein, which is a plaintiff's law firm, which is a specialty in class action lawsuits. I asked David to speak about his firm's ongoing litigation related to business interruption insurance policies. Not surprisingly, the insurance industry does not want to pay claimants for amounts owed under business interruption policies, and the fight has begun. The next speaker is Josh Sovin. I met Josh in my first day of class at Penn in September 1984 in an English seminar. We've been buddies ever since and we're roommates in college. Josh is a law partner at Wilson Sonsini with a specialty in antitrust. I've asked Josh to speak about the future implementation of antitrust during the pandemic, the likely antitrust attacks against the tech sector, expected differences between the Trump and Biden administrations, and prospective antitrust legislation proposed by Senator Warren. We will hear from Peter Moskis, who is an associate professor of psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He is the author of the book, Cop in the Hood, which describes Peter's experience in the Baltimore Police Academy and his career as a police officer in Baltimore's Eastern District. Peter will discuss some of his ideas for police reform. Next up is Barry Friedman, who is a professor of law and affiliated professor of politics at NYU Law School. Barry will discuss his recent work with police departments all over the country and other advocates to promote public safety through transparency, equity, and democratic engagement. Richard Fontaine is the CEO of the Center for New American Security, which is a defense and national security think tank. I have asked Richard to speak about the recent COVID experience with China and the WHO. In addition, Richard will comment on the EU experience with respect to the pandemic and how the European countries were surprisingly unwilling to share medical supplies, so much for one Europe. Mike Novi is the president of Tequila Casa de Grone. I met Mike with our daughters, our best friends, and equestrian riders. Mike will speak about trends in the spirits market since the outbreak of the pandemic, as well as the challenges in marketing, production, and logistics for a luxury brand. Vivek Ramaswamy is the founder and CEO of Royvent Sciences, an $8 billion biopharmaceutical company. Vivek will speak about how society will function if we cannot find a vaccine for as long as 10 years. He will also discuss the consequences of censorship during the pandemic and briefly comment on the flaws in stakeholder capitalism. The Chatham House rules apply for this discussion, and this call is being recorded. I want to spend a few seconds on housekeeping. I'm going to take the next weekend off because it is July 4th weekend, and a number of listeners have requested a vacation. So the next edition of What Happens Next will be in two weeks on July 12th. This will be a very special episode as I will co-host the event with Stanford Law Professor Rick Banks, and the show will focus solely on race relations. Rick is putting together an incredible collection of speakers for this event, and I hope you all can join us. A number of listeners over the past few weeks have been sending me a quest to include their friends and family on the invitation list for what happens next. 
because I expect extraordinary demand for the up in, upcoming call on July 12th, I will be sending out an email in the next few days that will allow you to invite guests to that special event. All right, it's game time. Our first speaker is Rob Kurzban, who spoke to us three months ago on what happens next. In that discussion, Rob said that at the time, which was three months ago, when you go to a grocery store wearing a mask, you will be ostracized. But wait just a few couple weeks, and you'll be shunned if you do not wear a mask. So that prediction was bang on. Let's hear about changing social norms during the pandemic. Go right ahead, Rob. You're up. Hi, Larry. Uh, thanks for having me back. I, I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate the, the point about the prediction. Um, I'm going to start with, um, you know, just backing up a little bit. So uh, many years ago, I used to do some research on the question of how people sorted into political parties. And based on my read of the data, uh, heavily influenced my, by my collaborator, Jason Whedon, who I, I want to mention, um, at, the, at the time we were studying it, we felt that people were overestimating how similar to each other people and the two parties were in terms of their political attitudes. Back then, people thought, if you take a random American voter out of a hat and you find out their political affiliation, their party affiliation, you can make a good guess about their policy views from ranging all the way from abortion to xenophobia. But we found a different picture. We found there was a mix within the parties. There were pro-life Democrats and anti-gun Republicans, um, and there's there a decent amount of variation. But we're at a moment in time right now where, as many people know, there has been a homogenization. Now, there's still the variation within parties. But right now, it is much more the case that if you know someone's party, you know a lot about the policy positions they endorse. And what I'm going to finish my time today with is, is talking a little bit about not just their policy positions, but the norms that they acquire. Uh, and as you mentioned, Larry, I'm going to talk about masks again. So you could imagine a parallel universe in which American citizens read the news, guidance from the WHO, CDC, and judge for themselves whether wearing a mask is a good idea and should be obligatory, a bad idea and should be prohibited, or somewhere in the middle. Um, if the evidence were clear, there'd be a strong norm. And by that, I mean how many people sort of believe one thing, uh, that sense of a norm, in one direction or another. And even if the evidence were mixed, if people were just looking at evidence, they would sort of split within parties um, you know, because the evidence of, of mask goods or bads should be unrelated to your views on abortion and xenophobia and so on. That is, in fact, not the world that we inhibit and have it. We inhabit a universe in which, and this is the crucial point, people are people taking are norms, norms. Of course, course, that according, according to what is good, uh, in quotes, for, for being a member of their party. So if a good Democrat says, oh, masks are great, people are, are taking that norm and um, symmetrically for Republicans. Um, and the, this is not just an argument about masks. Uh, this is an argument uh, that I think will bear on many different kinds of examples and many different kinds of norms that people are adopting. And the key point is that, again, people are choosing norms and then not just the idea, but the behavior in order to signal that they are a virtuous member of their party rather than through some rational decision-making process, um, in, in terms of a rational decision-making process. And I, I think in terms of what comes next, you know, the point that Larry wants to talk about it, I think, you know, this represents tremendous danger and risk. Um, and I, I encourage everyone just to reflect on the bare fact that American citizens at this moment in time are taking decisions that, you know, have a literal bearing on life and death by interrogating what party leaders and party norms are telling them to do and to what kind of behaviors to exhibit rather than the facts of the matter. Uh, and, you know, my sense of this, and, and perhaps, you know, I'm a bit of an alarmist, my, my sense of this is that this should really, really scare you. I mean, we have historical examples when people adopt norms in virtue of the, the, the either the party in power or the party that they adhere to, um, independent of the relevant evidence, maybe even other norms that they, that they have. And those examples are 
really scary. And, you know, we might hear more about that in a couple of weeks and on the show that, that Larry was uh, advertising at the top here. Um, but there's another piece to this because as also Larry indicated, because what's moralized in the present atmosphere is highly volatile and highly consequential, you know, this idea that people are adopting norms lives larger than it would in sort of a lower stakes environment. Um, and so I have been thinking a little bit about recently, just to take one example, and I imagine this is an example that will occupy our attention, is what would happen if the leadership of a political party establishes a belief that a vaccine, for example, is ineffective or even dangerous? Um, holding aside the question of what the facts of the matter are, but, the, but I'm in particularly interested in the case in which you know, leadership establishes the idea that an otherwise effective vaccine poses a danger to people who take it. And I, I don't think this is, um, you know, so such a fantasy. I don't think this is crazy. I think maybe a few years ago, if you'd asked me something like that could happen, I might have said it was crazy. But I think what, the data that we're getting now, the patterns that we're seeing now in terms of people's behavior, um, raises that as a possibility in virtue of how people are using this moment to signal their, their goodness as either, you know, adherence to a particular party or a particular movement. Um, and I'll just finish up uh, with my last minute here uh, with, I'm going to get to Yoda. So, uh, you know, humans tend to experience anger when they perceive norm violations, right? When people do something wrong, and this is the, the point about, you know, um, the, about masks. So, you know, as Yoda said, anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering. When mask wearers right now are seeing maskless people, we have anecdotal evidence that they get angry. The human moral psychology changes norm violations from differences of opinion to conflict. Um, and exacerbating this for reasons that I still don't understand, um, moral panics have become way more common in the present moment with violations seen under every pebble in every cloud with maximal punishment being inflicted for trifling lapses as we've seen, for example, in some very difficult to watch attacks of people, for example, who are maskless in, in public or in uh, stores and so on. And my guess is that this will continue to occur, to occur as the pandemic continues and critical theory continues to gather the steam that it currently has. I know that Larry likes to end on high notes, but I'm, I have to end with a dark one, which is, which is that I think what is also going to continue is the sort of feckless behavior of those who know that this kind of mob violence is wildly over punitive and yet stand by to feed on its latest victim um, as observers hope that they're just not next. Um, and so with that, once again, thanks for having me back. Sure. Great. Okay. Um, we'll come back to you in Q&A in a minute. Uh, David Stellings is our next speaker. Uh, David is a class action lawyer, and we'll discuss um, the insurance industry as it relates to business interruption policies. Go ahead, David. Thanks, Larry. Hi, everyone. We know from speakers on prior uh, What Happens Next calls that no industry has been hit harder by this pandemic than hospitality. Virtually every restaurant and hotel in the country was forced to close by government orders in early spring. Most remain closed for more than two months, and some of them still are closed today because of continuing state and municipal restrictions. Um, many of the affected restaurants and hotels bought insurance to protect them specifically in a situation like this. It's called business interruption insurance, and it's supposed to pay for losses incurred by the insured as a result of the loss of the use of the property, the restaurant or hotel in this example. These businesses pay premiums to their insurers specifically for this type of insurance. Many pay those premiums for years or even decades. Um, but when restaurants and hotels around the country filed claims for business interruption insurance starting in April and May, insurers virtually uniformly denied those claims. And they denied them quickly with 
no or virtually no investigation at all. These summary coverage denials resulted in, uh, unsurprisingly, in many lawsuits being filed against the insurance companies. I'll first give a quick overview of the universe of the lawsuits filed, and then I'll talk a bit about the claims asserted and a few of the arguments plaintiffs are making to overcome the insurer's likely defenses. So hundreds of lawsuits have been filed in federal courts around the country. Dozens of those hundreds are class actions that purport to represent virtually every restaurant or every hotel in an area or even nationally. Um, in addition to the federal suits, there are hundreds of additional suits that were filed in state courts. Some of the plaintiffs in the federal suits have asked a group of judges called the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation to consolidate and centralize all the federal cases into a single case before a single judge who will make all pretrial determinations for all the lawsuits. This sounds boring. Larry told me it was boring, but it, 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 it's procedural, but it's very important because the vast majority of these multi-district litigations ultimately result in large global resolutions because there's enormous litigation pressure brought to bear on the parties by having only one shot to win or lose for a very large class of plaintiffs. One big downside of not centralizing and instead having hundreds or even thousands of lawsuits proceed separately is that different courts probably will decide the identical legal issues in different ways. The results are, will be all over the place and that makes it very hard for the parties to assess litigation risk accurately. Now, the vast majority of the plaintiffs have asked for centralization. All of the insurers, as far as I know uh, so far, are opposing centralization. It's hard to predict whether the panel will centralize the cases or not. There's an upcoming hearing on July 30th. And by the way, those hearings are, uh, remind me a lot of these calls because when you argue at one of these hearings, you have 90 seconds to speak. And then at the end of the argument, the judges take as much time as they want to ask you whatever questions they want. Um, so before I give an overview about the party's arguments, everyone should understand that I'm a plaintiff's class action lawyer, as Larry mentioned. I know a lot more about the claims being asserted by the plaintiffs than I do about the defenses the insurers will use. With that said, uh, a typical business interruption uh, provision, and they vary a little bit from policy to policy, but they're mostly generally the same. Typical provision is insurer will pay for the actual loss of business income you sustain due to the necessary suspension of your operations during the period of restoration. Suspension must be caused by direct physical loss of or physical damage to property at a described premises caused by or resulting from a covered cause of loss. There's also something called civil authority coverage that provides payments for loss caused by action of civil authority. Most of the complaints that have been filed assert the same few claims. There's breach of contract, breach of covenant of good faith and fair dealing, unfair business practices, and a request for declaratory relief. The plaintiffs generally say that government closure orders cause them to physically lose access to their premises, especially their serving areas, and that that loss caused operations to be suspended. The insurers are going to argue that that's not physical loss under the terms of the policy and cases go both ways on this physical loss issue. Insurers probably also are going to argue that civil authority coverage doesn't apply because there wasn't physical damage to the area surrounding the restaurants and hotels, but plaintiffs will um, argue that the virus did 
physically infect the surrounding areas, and that in turn is what caused the government orders to be issued. One interesting point about the breach of covenant of good faith and fair dealing claims is that if plaintiffs can show the breach was intentional, punitive damages may be available, and those could be very large. Some policies contain what's called a virus exclusion clause, and they generally say that the insurer won't pay for loss or damage caused by or resulting from any virus, bacterium, etc., that uh, is capable of inducing physical distress, illness, or disease. Plaintiffs say the exclusion doesn't apply in this situation because the business closures during the pandemic were being caused by government shutdown orders, not by the virus being present in the restaurant or hotel. Uh, also, plaintiffs uh, say that the caused by or resulting from language, it's very narrow causation language in the insurance context. Uh, insurance companies use broader language all the time. For example, the one where they uh, deny coverage relating to war, revolution, etc. They uh, say harm is excluded, however caused, arising directly or indirectly out of those things. Um, plaintiffs argue that the insurers drafted the contracts and intentionally chose to use the narrow, co narrow causation language. Plaintiffs also say that the insurers have uh, what are called force majeure clauses in many of their insurance contracts that expressly apply in the event of a global pandemic and that the insurers chose not to include such clauses in these BI policies. Um, to finish up, I'll just say that there are very serious lawyers involved on both sides of the litigation, um, very prominent plaintiffs class action firms, their top-notch trial lawyers, including a guy named Mark Lanier, who recently hit uh, Johnson & Johnson up with billions of dollars in plaintiffs' verdicts and uh, uh, baby powder talk cases. You may have heard that Johnson Johnson no longer is selling baby powder, mostly because of Mark. Um, also, some top corporate defense firms are actually representing plaintiffs. They're representing businesses suing the insurance companies for denial of coverage. The insurers, of course, will have their 18 lawyers involved as well. There's the possibility of legislative help, um, maybe for the insurance industry, maybe for businesses. Also, um, it should be an interesting litigation to watch. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, David. Uh, our next speaker is Josh Sovin. As I mentioned, Josh was my college roommate. He's also a partner at Wilson Sunstini, and he's an expert in antitrust. Josh, why don't you go ahead? Thanks, Larry, very much for inviting me to participate. And hello, everyone out there. Hope everyone's doing well. So far, the pandemic has had very little effect on U.S. antitrust policy. The first question that Larry asked me to address is, will corporate bankruptcies allow for horizontal mergers that violate typical antitrust requirements? That's an easy one. Uh, the answer is no. DOJ and the FTC will not change their policies to allow mergers that would otherwise violate the antitrust laws. The FTC made this clear uh, in March of this year when it issued guidance that said, quote, neither the legal standards that apply to transactions nor the FTC's investigational standards have been relaxed in light of the coronavirus pandemic. I know for a fact that DOJ is taking the exact same approach. However, a company's bankruptcy is relevant to determining whether the transaction violates the antitrust laws. If a company will stop operating on its own, then it is obviously a lot less likely that the sale of the company will reduce competition. The rub is that DOJ and the FTC have adopted a standard that is really difficult to meet. Uh, they require a company to demonstrate that it is Rasputin-like dead and that no other non-competing company will purchase the bankrupt firm. 
having worked at both DOJ and the FTC, I know that trying to meet this so-called failing firm test is playing with a stacked deck. The way to get antitrust approval when a company is in bankruptcy is not to try to satisfy the government's arbitrary test or to use the standard antitrust playbook, which gives the government months and months to review a deal and relies heavily on retained economists. Instead, the company should leverage the party's business officials, not economic consultants, and the real-world market facts to show that the transaction will not result in price increases. And here's the kicker. Give the government no more than six months to review the transaction. As I tell all of my clients, rarely does anything good come from hanging around the Justice Department or the FTC for long periods of time. The second question is, will the rise of tech in the pandemic mean that government will break up big tech? The pandemic has absolutely put a few more logs on the antitrust fire directed at large technology companies, but that fire was blazing long before COVID. Attorney General Barr's office is supervising DOJ's antitrust investigations into tech, and virtually every state AG's office is participating. Full disclosure, I do represent one of those large technology companies that's under investigation. However, just because the antitrust authorities might want to break up large technology companies does not mean that they can. In the U.S., enforcers must prove in court that a company has violated the antitrust laws before a company can be broken up. And in court, the advocates for breakups will face the substantial challenge that today's large technology companies generally have not tripped the circuit breakers that get companies in antitrust trouble. They have not raised prices to consumers or slowed down innovation, just the opposite. Without the ability to prove harmful price or innovation effects, breaking up large technology companies will, will require prosecutors to demonstrate and courts to find that the antitrust laws prohibit or limit conduct that has never been viewed to date as anti-competitive. Conduct such as offering consumers prices and services at lower zero prices, engaging in micro-acquisitions, aggregating and utilizing large data sets and alleged political bias. This is all very new ground for antitrust and the outcome is uncertain. Uh, the last question, Larry, you asked me to talk about is how would Biden differ in his implementation of antitrust policy? Contrary to conventional wisdom, the number of antitrust cases brought by a Biden or another Trump administration would probably be about the same. While the parties sometimes use different rhetoric to describe antitrust, the data show that Republican and Democratic administrations tend to bring roughly the same number of cases. The only case that a Hillary Clinton administration might have challenged that Trump did not is T-Mobile Sprint. I was lead counsel for Deutsche Telekom on that deal, and a Clinton DOJ probably would have lost in court just as the state AGs did. It's hard to prove that a transaction that will increase wireless network capacity by 600% will result in higher prices or less innovation. The law also doesn't easily permit dramatic increases in antitrust enforcement through the courts in any event. Most successful government antitrust cases involve the same narrow fact patterns, mergers that reduce the number of horizontal competitors from three to two, and companies with high market shares that engage in blatantly anti-competitive conduct that lacks any plausible pro-competitive benefits. The history shows that when DOJ and the FTC stray from these limited fact patterns, they almost always lose. A recent example is the Trump administration's challenge to AT&T's vertical acquisition of Time Warner. DOJ got crushed in court. The most likely change in a Biden administration would be new antitrust legislation, not more cases. Recognizing that the antitrust framework makes it hard to substantially increase enforcement through the courts, 
proponents of more aggressive antitrust policies such as Senator Warren have introduced legislation that would literally restructure U.S. antitrust law. On a foundational level, Senator Warren's bill would replace the longstanding antitrust consumer welfare standard that is used today with a broader set of objectives that would cover, quote, all segments of American society, including workers, consumers, entrepreneurs, all in order to protect, quote, a healthy democracy, unquote. Senator Warren would ban any transaction in which the buyer or seller has annual revenue of at least $40 billion, regardless of its competitive effects. Her bill would also prohibit large companies from conduct that is ubiquitous in the market today, including offering lower prices for bundled product sets. All of this could do real damage to the U.S. economy and harm consumers. For example, venture capitalists have provided testimony to the, vet, to the Federal Trade Commission that bans on mergers by large companies will reduce capital flows to U.S. startups and send capital investment offshore. And one should not assume, again, contrary to the conventional wisdom, that enough Republicans will work to block such legislation in a Biden administration. A number of Republicans are as determined as Democrats to use the antitrust laws against large technology companies. For example, it has been publicly reported that Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, a conservative Republican, is leading the multi-state investigation into Google. In short, it's full speed ahead for U.S. antitrust, with or without the pandemic. Thanks again, Larry. I appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. Um, our next speaker is Peter Moskis. Um, I read Peter's book, Cop in the Hood, when it came out, I think, in like 2008, 12 years ago. Um, at the time, I had just finished watching The Wire, which was my favorite TV program, and I was very interested uh, in how police uh, worked in such a, uh, a crime-ridden city like Baltimore. Um, given the recent um, condemnation of the police by wide sectors of our population, I thought it would be a perfect time to bring Peter in to discuss uh, his experiences in the police force and police academies um, and then ideas on reform. Peter, please go ahead. Hi, thanks. Um, I can start by just sort of commenting on one thing you just said. Um, there has been a lot of criticism of police recently, and there should be a lot of criticism of police. I think that's how organizations get better. Um, but it's important to remember that despite um, everything that's happened, uh, both in the past two months, but also in the past five years, and you could argue in the past 150 years, uh, police remain an incredibly popular institution. Uh, and people, even today, um, most people want more policing, not less policing. And it's important to keep in, I think, the back of everyone's mind as we talk about ways to change po policing or even defund policing or even among some fringe groups abolishing policing. Um, but I want to focus um, specifically on, I think, uh, sort of manageable areas of reform that aren't even on the table, um, partly because they don't specifically answer current questions relating to police involved killings. They don't relate specifically to um, racial bias and disparity, but I believe that to improve all these factors that matter, we have to focus on policing more generally and improve policing overall to, to improve policing uh, at an individual interaction level. Um, but the part I like to talk about is this idea that generally half, a police, half, half the police department is dedicated to patrol, which means cops sitting in cars, waiting for someone to call 911 or 311. Um, I should also give one caveat that it's, a, it's always a little tough to talk about police in general. Keep in mind that there are 17,000 police departments in America, most incredibly small, um, and about 
three quarters of a million sworn police officers. So it's it's hardly a monolithic entity, and, and the regional variations are huge, um, as are the urban and suburban and rural uh, variations. But this idea that cops sit in cars and, and respond whenever the public wants them to respond um, came partly just because of technological inventions, uh, specifically telephones, but that was a bit earlier, but also then the two-way radio, the walkie-talkie. And the first 911 system was implemented in New York City in 1968, and it spread in the late 60s and early 70s to um, most of America. This idea, though, um, was never really planned or research. It was supposed to inc increase efficiency. There, um, primarily, it was a cost-saving technique. It would take cops off the beat, and they could cover more area in a car. Another supposed benefit was that it would limit the interaction of police and the public because in the wake of urban unrest in, in the 60s, uh, the, and this comes out of legal scholarship, which um, identified and condemned police discretion. And the idea was that if cops are agents of oppression and cops are misusing discretion, we need to limit their interactions to when the public wants them. And then society can cure society's problem. And you have both the criminal justice system phrase came out of this and, and um, and the idea that crime is caused by root causes, which um, is never, those being poverty, racism, unemployment, social inequity, that kind of thing, uh, which are very important on their own, but the link between that and crime is, is much more uh, nebulous. So I've, and I proposed um, in the book Hop in the Hood, I, I described this concept called policing green, which is basically just get cops out of their cars. Um, at some level, it's that simple. Will it change the world? No, I don't know. But I think it would fundamentally change policing um, by increasing the positive interactions that people have on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it would increase police understanding of a community because they would be forced to be much more part of that community. Um, but it would be also a tough sell now. I mean, there, there are practical problems and union issues and I wouldn't want to underestimate that, but I would like to get this into the public debate a little bit. The idea that, um, yeah, if you, if you still have 911 for cops and for, I mean, excuse me, you still have 911 for uh, firefighters and for ambulances. Um, but quite frankly, if you need a police officer, you should go find him or her or call the police station, like what used to happen before 1970. Um, to give you though, some idea, you know, in Los Angeles, there are roughly uh, a million calls for service every year. Baltimore, with far fewer people, um, similar numbers. New York City uh, has four, uh, five, over 500 calls an hour. comes out to about 5 million calls a year. Um, almost a quarter million calls for domestic incidents in New York City alone. Um, part of the problem is we have promised unlimited police supply uh, to a, what is a very finite resource. But the other problem, and this relates more to, to greater societal issues, is we, in effect, intentionally, but well, a little intentionally, a little unintentionally, we moved the idea of community standards from a police officer, however flawed, to the citizens, who I would argue are more flawed, maybe not collectively, but certainly individually. The idea that cops come when anybody calls often, and we've seen this in cases of, of bad police shootings recently, that the cops end up being basically a force multiplier to citizen bias. Um, I would believe the trained cops uh, who we tell that this, this is their job are a better ju judge of community standards and what is uh, proper order maintenance than any citizen who can pick up the phone. Um, but the real issue then, especially in an age where we're 
uh, both will be forced either by financial necessity or ideological uh, advocacy to reduce police funding. Ultimately, it's cheaper because one of the downsides to having cops available to answer car calls for service, it means that most of the time they're not doing very much because they have to be available. And in the police service, uh, the, the phrase is that a cop is in service when the cop is, in effect, available to answer calls. And then when the police officer is actually dealing with citizens who are doing anything that can't be dropped immediately, the police officer is considered out of service. And even just that semantic difference um, is, is uh, well, we could reverse it. Um, po police patrol remains at the bottom of the rung of the organizational hierarchy. Uh, and again, these are changes that in some ways are, would be surprisingly simple, but it's a, it would be a radical transformation of the police department in other ways, which I think is better than some of the current focus on outlier incidents um, and sort of the exception and ignoring uh, some of what police can do well. Peter, thank you. Um, our next speaker is Barry Friedman. Barry is a, a law professor at NYU, and he's been working really hard to work with advocates and police departments to improve uh, police safety through transparency, equity, and democratic engagement. Barry, tell us what you're up to. Uh, thank you, Larry, and it's a wonder I'm on the show since I seem not to have roomed with you everywhere or have played golf with you or <laughs> anything else. But I'm but it's I'm early. Really glad it's still here. early. <laughs> we have a retirement community of opportunity. <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, so I am the faculty director of the Policing Project, which is an organization I founded at New York University School of Law after I published my book on policing entitled Unwarranted Policing Without Permission. Uh, we are very unique, as Larry pointed out, in that we work across the ideological spectrum and with all stakeholders, so it's not unusual that we're working with activists and advocates and with police departments and municipal officials at the same time. It's, it's a fraught space. Uh, it's a wonder I don't have an ulcer. Uh, but I want to talk to you about our three areas of work, uh, which contain within them two core ideas that I hope that you walk away with, one about front-end accountability and one about rethinking and reimagining what policing might look like, which actually links up a lot with what Peter just had to say. So the primary focus of the policing project, the intuition that, that is at the heart of my book and that set us off, is that we talk about accountability all the time around policing, and we talk about it all the time around the rest of government, but we mean two completely different things. And I, I didn't realize this until 2006 when a light bulb went off in my head. So. Uh, when we talk about accountability around policing, you know what, it, because you've been hearing tons about it now in the news. I mean, people want criminal prosecutions of officers. They want uh, civil rights suits. They want the DOJ to come in and investigate. They want a civilian review board. These are all things that happen after the fact. It's after the fact or what we call back-end accountability uh, because something's gone wrong and somebody wants to point a finger and hold somebody responsible and body cameras are even a, a form of that. But in the rest of government, that's not what accountability means. We do have holding people responsible sometimes when they've done things wrong, but mostly in the rest of government, accountability is front-end accountability, which is to say uh, that uh, democratically elected folks set rules, policies, and practices that have um, popular input into them and that are transparent. And we just don't do that around policing. We have never done it around policing. I'm happy to talk about it at great length if you're, you have questions. Uh, but we've got a number of projects uh, in the works to fix that, uh, and they include uh, in the reading assignment that I'm sure you all did, and I will hand out a quiz later, 
uh, a document called Changing the Law to Change Policing, which involves a set of reforms at the federal, state, and local level that we just should adopt. Those are substantive. They're things we should change, like uh, decertification or qualified immunity or use of force standards, things you've heard about a lot in the news. But they are also procedural in terms of either police commissions or inspectors general. We hear a lot about compliance in the world today, but we don't do much of that around policing. And we're also developing a health check that just tries to determine whether a police department is healthy or not. But that's all on the front end. The second thing I want to talk about is just an application of that that Larry and I thought might interest you, which is we do a lot of work around policing technologies. So facial recognition, license plate readers, drones, stingrays, if you've heard of stingrays, uh, which are cell site simulators, uh, you undoubtedly heard the news that Amazon and Microsoft and IBM have either put moratoria on or backed away from offering facial recognition to police departments. Uh, we work at the heart of all that. Uh, we work with those companies. Some of them, uh, we work with communities, with vendors, with police departments. Our two big ideas in this area are that any use of police surveillance technology should be democratically authorized, and we ought to make sure that the benefits outweigh the cost. And we don't do much CBA around policing at all, and that's a real problem. Uh, and in this space, we do a really interesting thing, which is that we actually do audits of these tech companies. We go in and look at their products. Uh, you're likely to hear an announcement very shortly about a, a very controversial product that we're in the middle of auditing. We work with them to remediate uh, and then eventually we publish a public report that explains what's gone on. And we're toying with the idea, we're doing a landscape analysis of actually setting up an, a certification body that would be something like, um, you know, lead certification for environmental buildings or underwriters labs for electrical products that would actually certify uh, surveillance technologies in terms of the potential harms and ways to mitigate them and maybe use cases. The second big idea, and the last thing I'm going to talk to you about, is what we call reimagining public safety. Uh, and you're hearing a lot about defunding the police, and there is a relationship between those two things, and I think it relates to some of the things that Peter had to say. So when you think about the harms of policing, there's all the stops and searches and frisks and arrests and uses of force that people are concerned are racially biased. Uh, but there's a whole other set of harms which have to do with all the things that we send the police to do to deal with that they are not trained to or apt to handle, such as substance abuse, mental illness, um, homelessness, and, and one actually that intrigues me a lot that I'd, I'd enjoy talking about if people had questions, which is traffic enforcement. Uh, I agree with Peter. They spend too much time driving around on traffic patrol and not nearly enough time getting out of their cars. And so we're working hard on this idea of reimagining public safety. We are looking, trying to understand what it is cops actually do all day long, to look at dispatch, which uh, is critical to understanding who gets sent uh, to what situations and what the right response is, whether we need co-response from other agencies. I have this crazy idea that we need a whole new form of, of first responders that are trained in mediation and social work uh, and some EMT along with um, the other aspects of, of policing like use of force and law enforcement. Uh, I will tell you we have one huge project on the ground in Chicago right now uh, that is doing exactly what Peter said, which is getting the cops out of their cars and getting them off the radio to build relationships with the community. And prior to COVID and uh, the protests recently, we were, we were seeing really, really strong results in terms of how the police and the community both were feeling about that. So I think that's the right direction. In your reading also was an op-ed I, I, I sent to – my time's up uh, – that I sent to uh, – that I published with the Wall Street Journal uh, – talking about some of these ideas, and I'd love you to take a look at it and let me know what you think. Thanks, Thanks for Of course. 
Okay, our next speaker is Richard Fontaine. Uh, he formerly worked with the State Department, the NSC, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is currently the CEO of the Center for a, National, uh, for a New American Security. This is a defense and national security think tank. Richard, tell us uh, what we don't know. Okay, well, thanks, Larry, for inviting me on the call. It's my first time joining. Very pleased to be here. And as Larry said, I'm CEO of the Center for New American Security. This is a bipartisan national security think tank in Washington, D.C. What we try to do is develop really innovative policy approaches to a full range of foreign policy and national security challenges that are facing the country. And among the work that we are doing, we have a new initiative that's looking specifically at what the world is likely to look like after coronavirus, what the scenarios are, and what the United States should do about it. This is something of obvious relevance to what Larry is doing with these calls. Um, Before CNES, as Larry mentioned, I was in government, including um, as the foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain for about five years, um, in addition to the other things. And throughout the time that I was in government and since then, you know, from time to time, we kind of kicked the thought experiment around, you know, what would it take to bring together in common cause countries that otherwise distrust each other? Is there a threat that's big enough, that's galvanizing enough, that's shared enough for big countries to kind of put aside their differences and work together? And at first glance, we you would think we had found it in COVID-19. Um, you know, it's, it's like an asteroid hitting the Earth. Uh, you know, it's threatened catastrophic health and economic consequences everywhere. There's no country, not the United States, not China, not Russia, not Europe, has an interest in seeing the virus spread. And while it continues to exist anywhere, it's a potential threat everywhere. And so this first half of 2020 has been something of a grand experiment in the possibilities and the limits of international cooperation. And the results of that experiment have been very striking because for all of the theoretical reasons for collaboration, the reality has been essentially every country for itself. Governments have made decisions on borders, on entry protocols, on export bans, on population control measures, largely on their own without very much consultation even with their neighbors. The G7 got together uh, in a virtual summit, uh, an emergency summit. They put out a great statement filled with abstract pledges of coordination, but it had not a single specific commitment. Then the G20 leaders got together and did the same thing. And so the coronavirus crisis might be worldwide, but the responses so far have been almost exclusively national. So it's kind of more Lord of the Flies than League of Nations, if you think about it that way. Um, But the lessons that we've seen over the past few months go beyond that observation, and I'll just talk briefly about the response from China and from Europe. And on China, it's, it's, it's important to the way that Americans think about China, because in Washington, even the most claw-bearing China hawks have generally said, okay, well, we may be competitive on a whole range of activities, military stuff and economics and everything else, but there should be some areas where we can leave open the possibility of cooperation, climate change, nonproliferation, global health. Um, But again, where the need to fight coronavirus may once have brought the United States and China closer together, today it's just been driving them further and further apart. You know, Beijing's first reaction was to cover up the extent of the virus's spread in Wuhan for some critical weeks. The CDC made an offer to send in an expert team, which the Chinese rejected. The Chinese foreign ministry tried to deflect the domestic criticism of their own response by slamming the United States and said America was spreading fear, wasn't sending help. Um, The WHO seemed strangely to bow to China, which ultimately led to the American withdrawal from the WHO. 
Um, and, and while the WHO even kind of praised the Chinese response. And then once infections dipped in China and they started to really gather pace outside it, Beijing pivoted. So it began saying, hey, look, we actually had the right response. Our top-down, we can build a hospital in a few days kind of brand of autocracy is the way to go, not this slow, fractious, divided democracy like the United States or these other ones. And so it started... Um, provide medical equipment uh, to uh, Italy and Spain and Serbia and other things, very conspicuous kinds of provisions of aid and things, trying to build some goodwill. And then in just the past few weeks, they pivoted once again, and they actually turned tougher in their approach. And now Chinese diplomats are often called wolf warriors after the nationalistic Chinese film series. They banned certain exports from Australia after Canberra called for an investigation into the virus's origins. They threatened European countries with cutting off medical equipment or with other sanctions for sins like barring Huawei from 5G networks or growing closer to Taiwan. And so moving to Europe, what this has happened is all of this has produced a quick backlash in Europe, which, of course, itself has been reeling from the coronavirus. And so Europe is supposed to be the region that is least nationalist, that is most transnational. Of course, the European Union project is founded on the ideas that the sort of national dissolved to some degree in favor of a continental sort of shared identity. But what we saw was that governments, even in liberal countries like Germany, but also in places like Italy and France and elsewhere, temporarily bar the export of key medical equipment, even to their common market, closing borders to their neighbors. And so this sort of Lord of the Flies mentality trumped the post-national impulse behind the European Union. And, and in recent weeks, the EU start to come around in a different way to a degree. It's launched a fund for continent-wide COVID recovery and things like that. But this initial every country for itself response was unmistakable. And here, this interplay between China's aggressive approach and Europe's focus at home is going to resonate for a while here because Beijing's new bullying has proved very unpopular on the continent. Opinion toward China is growing pretty skeptical pretty fast. But Europe's recession is projected to be longer and deeper either than Asia's or North America's. And if that's the case, then Europe's going to be increasingly dependent on Chinese capital and markets, not less so. And this, in turn, no matter what the sentiment is in Europe, could drive a wedge in relations between the United States and its transatlantic partners. So I just close by sort of observing that, you know, this year's foreign policy story is quite obviously dominated by coronavirus and it's still being written. The two sets of relationships that are most determinative in shaping the world afterwards are going to be America's ties with Europe and Asia, especially with China. The final chapter in the story is not going to turn just on the response of those two regions, but also how the United States itself emerges from the pandemic, whether we come out stronger or weaker, a closer ally or more distant to our friends, more engaged in the world or less. And that may be a subject for discussion during the Q&A, but I'll stop there. Sounds good. Okay. It turns out that Mike Novi's phone line just dropped, so he'll join us back in a second. So in the meantime, I'll go on to our next speaker. Uh, let me by, open by saying that um, you know, in this call, we generally have some public policy, we have some philosophy and political science and uh, sociology and, and legal, but we also try to cover the areas of industry and business. So um, let me start out with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, he is a CEO uh, and founder of Royvin Science, which is an $8 billion biopharmaceutical company. And I've asked Vivek to speak about 
what how our society should will be able to function if we do not get a vaccine um, as well. Okay, actually, I'm going to reverse course. Mike Novi has rejoined the line. Uh, Mike, <laughs> we'll come back to Vivek in a minute. Uh, Mike is the president of a tequila company called Tequila Costa Dragon. Um, and I want to hear from Mike about the challenges he faces um, in running a luxury brand tequila market uh, company. And I'm also interested in the general spirits market uh, during this COVID experience. Mike, why don't you go ahead? Thanks, Larry. Yeah, and what, a, what great timing, right, to drop 30 seconds before my turn. So you, uh, Larry asked me a few questions, and I'll cover each of these here in, in part. So first of all, uh, Larry asked about marketing, production, and logistical challenges for a high-end consumer product. And I'll answer that through the lens of a luxury tequila company. But most luxury spirits brands come to life one relationship at a time. And this is true for players large and small. It's really an all-hands-on-deck, out in the market, working the streets, presenting to buyers, talking to consumers at key events, really with a two-pronged goal of making a sale and developing ambassadorship with the people with you know, whom you're, you're interacting. This approach develops a deep sense of authenticity for your brand, and if you get it right, there's tremendous trade and consumer brand loyalty that comes from it. In terms of advertising, currently, and especially during the crisis, online is where the action is, especially social media and search engine optimization. You can geo-target ads uh, very tightly and serve up an endless stream of communication. The key to success is acquiring the followers and developing relevant and engaging content to serve up. Um, this is frequently done through um, our organization and, and a lot of other luxury players out there through cultivating uh, relationships with opinion leaders and influencers. Public relations also directly plays a very important role. You can jump right into mass media, but it's extremely expensive, it's, and it's very hard to establish authenticity and credibility with consumers and um, command the high, the high margins that we're all looking for when you do that. For many luxury brands, the slow and more personal approach worked really well until almost all of the elements of the in-person strategy were taken away from us a few months ago. From a production standpoint, uh, during the COVID crisis, our actions were to protect our production workers and move stock to the U.S. as quickly as possible to mitigate risk of disruption of rail and trucking due to COVID and the risk of uh, border shutdown due to political decisions and tensions. I'm going to use a few terms or a couple of terms to start out with that are used in the industry for how we categorize trade channels on and off-premise specifically. On-premise accounts are those where you purchase and consume the product on that location, such as a bar, restaurant, or hotel. And off-premise is a retailer who sells products for consumption elsewhere. In the U.S., we have a three-tier alcoholic beverage distribution system. This is true for beer, wine, and spirits. In general, a distiller cannot sell directly to either an on- or an off-premise account, but must sell through a distributor. That distributor actually, in many cases, uh, can be the state. 17 states have some control, either partial through distribution or full through distribution and retail of alcoholic beverage sales and distribution. Direct-to-consumer sales is generally only allowed when you have an on-premise license where you have walk-in clientele and operate a tasting room and bar, uh, which gives you direct access to those consumers. Um, there are some nuances to this. Some of you may live in states where local distilleries can sell to uh, in-state patrons, but it's generally not the case. Something that I'll note in this area of logistics is that we actually saw an immediate emergence of new retailers selling our tequila retailers who we hadn't reached out to. When it comes to retailers of alcohol sales, you know who your customers are because they have to be licensed to sell spirits. And when you're selling, as we are, $75 to $300 bottles of tequila, you generally have a pretty small number of important partners selling your products. 
And in mid-March, we saw a really curious increase in new accounts purchasing, and they appeared to be small retailers, many in odd locations, and they were not previously on our radar screen. And this was due to the rapid consumer adoption of online delivery order aggregators like Drizzly, Minibar, Caskers, and Reserve Bar. These people have become now termed the fourth tier, and they're the DoorDash of alcohol. They collect, um, they collect orders and process it through a network of bricks-and-mortar retailers that are frequently very small and very local. So now the lottery ticket selling mom-and-pop corner store suddenly has become a retailer of luxury goods and a valuable partner for producers like ourselves. This has been a blessing and a curse. It's, it frag- on, a, on the curse side, it fragments our sales coverage model, and in some markets, they're stealing share from some of our historically important luxury retailers. Um, but it's also, and probably net, a blessing since they have increased our access to consumers and they've spread our business risk, risk across a larger base of accounts. Larry also asked about the alcoholic market and the difference of that versus other consumer goods and asking if consumption is up. So alcohol is similar to many consumable categories where for years there's been a steady premiumization. Beer, if you look at these uh, alcohol categories, um, beer consumption in gallons peaked sometime in the mid-1980s, but dollar sales continue to climb in very low single digits since. Wine shows roughly the same profile towards this less quantity but more quality consumption. And for spirits, the the mid-2000s were the inflection point. After decades of slow decline in gallonage, spirits started to grow and we saw people drink both better and more. We saw the rise of cocktail culture that breathed new interest and life into sleepy categories like bourbon, gin, and then tequila. And this was all working really well until mid-March when the world started to shut down. And in an instant, consumer preferences and behavior changed. When everyone ran out to stockpile toilet paper and cans of soup, they also stocked up on liquor. What they bought was cheap vodka and whiskey in large bottles specifically. They shopped mostly in grocery stores and mass merchandisers like Walmart and some online. The mass merchandisers and grocers traditionally have not been luxury uh, spirits purveyors. And they chose familiar brands. They ran out and they bought big brands that they knew would be reliable. We also saw a surprising increase in the sales of older brands, brands like Dewar's, Smirnoff, Seagram Seven Crown, our fathers and grandfathers brands. We call them in the industry comfort brands. They're reassuring. They take you back to simpler times when you didn't have to be the grown-up in the room. Uh, Larry also asked me, are consumers drinking alone or solely with their alone or solely with their partner? And if so, does this change the choice of what consumers drink? Well, when the world uh, closed down and stay-at-home orders began, we drank with whoever was sheltered with us. Start with that. Uh, loyalty card data from large retailers indicates that we also drink more and we drink more frequently if the shopper behavior is an indicator of the consumption patterns. It's also been reported that we started drinking earlier in the day and longer into the evening. At first, we probably drank because we were nervous, but then since we were home and didn't have to worry about driving from a restaurant or a bar, we probably had an extra drink or two at the end of the day. We think that there were probably three economic mindsets uh, mindsets, uh, that were um, influencing our business at that time. Number one was I lost my income and I need to conserve. Number two is I might lose my income and I need to conserve. Number three, I'm not concerned about my income, but I don't want to be a conspicuous consumer. All of those are pretty tough if you're a luxury tequila producer. And luxury brands like us, we had to adapt our messaging and our approach very quickly to reflect the appropriate tone and also also how to um, communicate this tone more effectively directly to consumers online. 
as you kind of progress through the crisis, in May, that we, we sensed that consumers were past the initial fear phase as they had moved into a boredom phase, which I know was an interesting topic of conversation presented last week. And at that time, we were looking for new entertainment, and we started to do things like virtual happy hours to drink with friends and family online. So this is all good for us now. At this time, luxury brands served, we served up education and entertainment with live online sessions of tastings on platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Zoom, where consumers could join celebrities chatting and drinking with distillers and talking about their favorite cocktails and food and cocktail experiences. And now we enter our new normal phase, and we've, this has been very good for, for the luxury spirits business. We've seen a big bounce in luxury sales, mainly in off-premise, I guess as would be predictable since the on-premise world is opening up slowly and in sort of a herky-jerky pattern. Consumers are very willing to spend $75 on a bottle of our Casa Dragones Blanco, which makes 16 drinks at home. It's a relatively good bargain compared to the $20 pre-dinner cocktail that you might have ordered before your $50 steak at a restaurant. And I think at this point, we all feel like we deserve a treat after all that we've been through. Also, we're hosting uh, friends at our homes again. And people naturally trade up when hosting guests at home. We see this empirically in our, in our sales data. It's a unique opportunity for luxury brands. So as a luxury producer, my challenge is to make you my ambassador and to teach you the importance of the points of my brand story so that you can communicate them. Because when you choose my tequila to serve with your friends at home, you are my influencer. And finally, people are social animals. So while we may find new enjoyment entertaining at home, we have all seen and experienced people flocking back to bars and restaurants as they are reopening in search of human interaction as much as they are a good drink and meal. So for the future, it's clearly going to be a bumpy ride for this category, especially with the on-premise world and outbreaks and boomerang closures. But we're optimistic about the resilience of the category and our business in particular. Thanks, Larry. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. We'll come back in a minute. Um, I introduced Vivek Ramaswamy a few minutes ago, but just as a reminder, uh, Vivek is the CEO of Royven Science, a biopharmaceutical company. Vivek, why don't you go ahead? Thank you, Larry. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. Thank you. Good. So I'm going to hit three topics. Uh, they're, they're each distinct, so I'm going to fly. Uh, so, so the first is relating to the prospects of not having a vaccine. Our public health leaders, including Dr. Fauci, have expressed optimism in a COVID vaccine by early January 2021, by early 2021. And I have no reason to doubt them, but we should remember that historically the average time to develop a vaccine for any disease is over 10 years. And for many viruses, we still don't have one. So COVID vaccine is definitely the holy grail right now, but our return to normalcy definitely shouldn't depend on it. And a permanent national lockdown, of course, isn't sustainable either. So I personally believe that we should shift our national priority to developing effective treatments for patients who end up in the hospital so that getting infected with COVID actually becomes a more tolerable prospect. The main feature that differentiates COVID, remember, from influenza is actually a much higher risk of hospitalization and mortality. And the thing that kills COVID patients isn't the virus itself, but the body's overactive immune response to that virus. So here's the good news. A number of companies, a number of researchers are developing drugs that actually address that overactive immune response and also drugs that directly target the virus. If those treatments are successful, I believe we can actually adopt a more measured societal response, even in absence of a vaccine. So for comparison, you think about the influenza or flu. Upwards of 50,000 people die each year of the flu. And for the flu, we don't engage in social distancing of any kind. We have a flu vaccine that's widely available, often for free, and yet even still fewer than half of American adults actually get it. Collectively, that tells us that we take an approach to influenza that's proportional to the health risk of actually getting it. 
I would contend that we should do the same for COVID-19, where if new therapies help reduce the risk of mortality or or intensive care, we can say that policymakers would face a more favorable risk-benefit calculus in deciding how to reopen the economy. I think our path to normalcy would still involve greater precautions for COVID than for the flu, such as wearing masks, proportionate to the increased risk of COVID compared to the flu. But if therapeutics succeed, then we're no longer going to need need a national lockdown, even in absence of that vaccine. And I'll just say it's it's a very personal issue for me. My wife was a frontline doc. She got infected. She separated herself from me and our infant son for over two months. So I don't take it lightly. But my own view is that in order to beat COVID this year, what we really need is base hits, not home runs. So that takes me to the second topic I was going to talk about relating to pandemics, but from a different lens. And that's offering my thesis that censorship causes pandemics. As America failed to effectively contain COVID this spring, we started to hear early whispers that America should have succeeded by being more like China. And in my opinion, nothing could be further from the truth. I think that as the history is written on COVID, we should remember that this virus became a global pandemic rather than a local epidemic due to the suppression of information by the Communist Party of China. Doctors were ordered to destroy samples. Physicians were reprimanded for alerting colleagues. Investigative journalists mysteriously disappeared. And during the pandemic, China also expelled all of the journalists from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post, stationed in China without any prior notice. That's the most significant cleansing of journalists in China since Tiananmen Square. There was a study earlier this year which estimated that the total number of COVID cases globally could have been reduced by 95% if the original local outbreak had been recognized and addressed more quickly in Wuhan. Now, the most notable part of this to me is that this wasn't even the first time that we saw it happen. COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2, but SARS-1 was an epidemic of a similar coronavirus in the year 2002. And funny enough, there's a book called The Pandemic Century, written by a medical historian who, perhaps by a stroke of genius, published his book last year immediately prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And as he describes in that book, SARS-1 only came to global attention when it reached Hong Kong long after mainland China had banned any disclosures relating to SARS. That outbreak began in 2002, but it wasn't until April 2003 when a Chinese whistleblower revealed that the true number of SARS infections was that was actually the time and the trigger for Chinese authorities acknowledging it. And that SARS-1 ended up infecting over 8,000 people from 29 countries around the world before it was stopped. There's a famous Martin Luther King quote which says that an injustice somewhere is an injustice everywhere. Last year, I would argue that an injustice somewhere became a pandemic everywhere. This isn't the time to point fingers and cast blame, but I do believe it's a time to learn our lessons for the future as we write our history on COVID-19 beginning now. We learned the lesson once in 2002. We learned the lesson and again in 2019 and 2020, I don't want to learn the lesson in a worse way in the future, especially at a time when China's approach to containing the pandemic is actually beginning to be wrongly lauded by some as a model for the United States. The third point I'd like to make is, is on a different topic, but more recent. I think a topic that's on a lot of our minds following the tragic death of George Floyd. And that's a trend where in recent weeks we have seen CEOs, including pharmaceutical CEOs, speak up publicly, not only on matters relating to their business, but also on social questions, accelerating a trend from the last few years known as stakeholder capitalism. And that's the idea that corporations exist not only to serve their shareholders, but the interests of society at large. And today, this notion of stakeholder capitalism is mostly a liberal idea, but I think that liberals should be most concerned of all about it. 
Stakeholder capitalism demands that corporate leaders play a fundamental role in determining and implementing our society's core values, something that we've seen in these recent weeks. But even for companies to pursue social values, they have to first define what social values are worth pursuing. And that isn't a business judgment, it's a moral judgment. And speaking not as a CEO, but just as a citizen, I can say that I don't want our capitalists, capitalists like me, to play an even larger role in shaping our country's political and social values. I personally believe that our values should be determined by our democratic process, not by corporate overlords. And the reason why many CEOs are speaking up, even in recent weeks, in favor of trendy social values is that they want to be more popular at a time when it's unpopular to be perceived as a pure capitalist. I personally believe that social activism by most companies is usually just business interest masquerading as morality. So today, when you hear companies issue public statements that racism is evil, that diversity is important, and that black lives matter, I encourage you not to believe them. Not because they're lying, but because their self-interest depends on saying exactly those things. And it's funny, because many people who love stakeholder capitalism actually hate the the Supreme Court ruling in Citizens United, because that ruling permits corporate money to influence our democracy. But the way I think about it is stakeholder capitalism is Citizens United on steroids. It not only permits companies to influence our social values, but it demands that our companies do precisely that. If corporations aren't people, then it's a mystery that liberals and conservatives alike want corporations to behave more like people rather than just letting companies be companies. And so in closing, I'll just observe that I think the heart of populist concern today about capitalism isn't that companies serve only their shareholders, but rather that capitalism has begun to infect our democracy through the influence of dollars in buying political outcomes. And to me, the right answer isn't to force capitalism into an arranged marriage with democracy, but what we really need as we head into this new decade is a clean divorce. So those are my thoughts, and thank you, Larry. That's tremendous. Okay, so um, I'll start the Q&A session, and as I told um, the other speakers, you're welcome to join in at any time. Um, and I guess I want to start a debate between Vivek and Richard Fontaine on China's role. Vivek, um, you were highlighting the point that um, China acted poorly with regards to its censorship. Um, let me highlight some of the things that people think that China did a good job on um, how do you feel about the fact that they were able to set up those hospitals so quickly? How do you feel about the fact that they were seem to be doing some tracing? They were able to successfully um, use their top-down approach to create, uh, in Wuhan, uh, limitations on people movement um, and a very aggressive lockdown. Was that successful, or um, uh, of course where do you successful. see the failures? I'll kick off. Of course it was successful. It is a truism that authoritarianism is more effective in containing crises than democratic approaches that respect freedom and autonomy. That goes without saying, and that's about technocratic effectiveness in containing a pandemic once started, which I think has rightfully led to open conversation, at least on this issue, a space where we're able to have an open conversation still, an open conversation about whether there, there was real virtue in, in the Chinese approach. And it's against that backdrop, against the obvious ways in which the Chinese government's approach to containing the pandemic might have been more efficacious than the U.S.'s approaches to containing the pandemic, that we ought to remember that it was those same conditions that allowed them to contain the pandemic that contributed to a local epidemic becoming a pandemic in the first place. And I think the fact that we learned that lesson in 2002 with SARS-1, and in some ways that we learned that same lesson again now, that if we had been more, if the Chinese government had been more transparent, had allowed information to flow more freely, had allowed doctors to be able to publish in a peer-reviewed way, to be able to speak up 
raise alerts to their colleagues that a local epidemic in Wuhan may have stayed a local epidemic in Wuhan rather than a global pandemic where even by January, when China claimed that there was no human-to-human transmission of the virus, there were already thousands of cases in the Western world by that time. No doubt many missteps by Western leaders, including U.S. leaders since then, but with thousands of cases already in the Western Hemisphere at that point in time, it's unclear whether or not there would have been an ability to prevent some type of pandemic altogether. So that's what I would say. Yeah, and I would um, add to that that, you know, the Chinese would like to erase the narrative of their early behavior in terms of covering this up by replacing it with the story of success. Look, you know, we were able to build hospitals in a few days. When we tell people to stay home, they stay home. Well, that's no surprise when you have a police state. Uh, We, you know, push the numbers down fast, look at our economic recovery compared to yours, things like that. The, the, the broader, which again is true, but you know, autocracies tend to be better at population control than democracies. There's not a lot of crime in some ways in North Korea, but do you want to live there? Um, the, uh, but the other question is one about, does it tell us anything about autocracy or democracy? And again, the Chinese are kind of touting their brand of autocracy as uniquely effective in dealing with challenges like this. That seems to me just not the case. I mean, Russia is autocratic minded, but the virus is out of control there. Um, And democracies like the United States have had a hard time dealing with it, but other democracies like New Zealand and Australia and South Korea and Taiwan have dealt with it very effectively. So part of this has to do with the degree of social control that uh, any government is willing to enforce in a short term in order to drive the numbers down, but also it's about the basic competence, irrespective of the nature of the political system. Barry, I, 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 I got a text from you. You want to join this conversation? What do you want to What do you want to talk yeah, about? I just I just wanted to um, echo a couple of things Vivek said, and I, I think I'm in agreement with him fully, though there may be one point of disagreement. But you know, he said something about not the time for finger pointing, but we do want to think about the way forward. And that is, I think that's exactly how I think about policing, which is that any of these systems that we're actually talking about today ought to be a closed loop, which is to say. Um, if you have things fixed on the front end, less goes wrong on the back end. And then when things go wrong on the back end, you're actually supposed to look very closely so that you can figure out how you're going to get it right on the front end the next time around. And then I was really interested in his comment about this sort of stakeholder capitalism because I, I think we're seeing that like crazy in policing right now. And, um, you know, on the one hand, you do want to certainly, in particular, hear from affected communities around policing. But I think that what's broken is a failure of institutions that actually regulate the police. So one of the things that just makes me incredibly angry is that everybody's pointing fingers at the police, including politicians, when the politicians should be looking at at themselves. I mean, where were they for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? The police didn't defund mental health services. The police didn't defund uh, homelessness services. Uh, the police didn't fail to regulate themselves. And so I think that, you know, and this is, I'm not alone in thinking this, many people who are constitutional law folks like me think this, is that we've had this collapse of the ordinary institutions of democratic government, and it's because of that that everybody's flooding the space. But, that, like, that's a problem we need to figure out. I wanted to um, bring Peter in as well in, in one element of your talk, Barry, was um, it relates to discretion. And when I, I read um, your book, Barry, and Peter's book, you know, a couple of days before, and I noticed that you disagreed on like, the role of discretion by the police. 
uh, Peter starts his book by articulating that you know it's very challenging what's going on out there on the street, and we need to give police a lot of discretion on how to handle a particular situation. But in your book, Barry, you suggest that it's that arbitrariness and the ability to allow discretion, which causes a lot of the uh, racial disparity or uh, how things are done, and you don't like it, you would prefer more randomness uh, in execution. So maybe, Barry, if you could start, why do you dislike discretion, and Peter, why do you want more discretion? So I'm interested to see whether at the end of this we uh, disagree, but I'll, but I'll begin with that premise, uh, though, as you heard earlier, there's a lot that Peter and I actually do agree on, and sometimes on Twitter we disagree and then agree that realize that we do agree. But so, you know, I, I remember when I first started to talk about what I call front-end accountability now and what I, uh, in my book, called Democratic Policing, and I gave a talk at NYU Law School, which is not a particularly conservative place, and one of my very liberal or progressive colleagues, you know, who's a policing expert, raised his hand. He was flabbergasted. He was like, this is ridiculous, this whole idea of rules and policies. Policing is all about discretion. There's no way you can possibly get it under control. Um, and at the end of that talk, this uh, mild-mannered gentleman came up to me and introduced himself and said his name was Eberhard schmidt Osman, and he was one of the leading administrative law experts in Germany, and that actually what I was advocating advocating was exactly how they how they regulated uh, policing in Germany, and they do in many civil law countries. And that should not come as a shock. I mean, the whole notion of the rule of law is that we have protocols and procedures and ways to do things that, that contain discretion. That's true of emergency room doctors. It's true of the military. And so, yes, there's discretion that is needed, but at the same time, uh, the way that you contain discretion and get good outcomes is that you think about protocols and procedures in advance, and that's where I think we've abandoned the police, police completely. Peter, you want to I, come Yeah, on Peter that? here. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, partly I say discretion is inevitable, so we have to embrace it um, because it's there. So the question is how do we manage it best? But it has to be part of a strategy that is comes from the community, that is that is articulated by police and political leadership, and the cops understand why they're doing something. You have to be able to – you know, discretion isn't just every cop does whatever he or she wants. It's saying we have a specific problem we're going to address, and we're going to use these legal means to do so. Um, but sometimes that means, for instance, I mean, cops need legal authority to act. I mean, otherwise they're just asking politely. Um, and sometimes what gives police that legal authority may not be directly related to the problem you're trying to solve, but it's part of an overall approach. Um, but the important part is that you have to be open about it and say, this is why we're doing something, this is why it's legal, this is why it's moral, and this is why it's effective. And once you can pass all three of those tests, go right ahead. Um, but it, really what I'm arguing against is a, a sort of a pullback of policing to, to sort of a what was, you know, the reform, I don't, well, just let me say a pullback of policing to, to, a, to a very strict sort of law enforcement model. Um, I will say that uh, I do worry a bit that body cameras, uh, we're in a stage now where discretion is being lessened. Um, there's a risk when cops cut, cut people a break. And when things are on body cam or phone camera, that, that risk is greater. Um, and we're in this weird middle ground now, I think, where discretion is going down, and yet the leadership hasn't stepped up to say, this is what we want police to do um, you know, in this, in this type of situation. Maybe just to try a different approach, um, and I'll ref kind of think like TSA or airports as an example. So um, they have a randomness test. And so um, 
I was once with my 90-year-old grandmother, and she was randomly selected, and they were patting her down, which obviously didn't make much sense. Um, when you take, like, El Al, and the Israelis do it, they don't go after the grandmas. They go after the young men and try to understand why, why they want to go to Tel Aviv. Um, Bill, why don't I start with you? Why do you find that targeting the people who we should be interested in is a bad idea, um, but go with something more random to pick on, you know, grandmothers who obviously have nothing to do with anything? There you're on, still on oh, mute. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't hear who that was directed to. It sounded like it was directed to me, but I thought I heard another name. So, I, you know, I, I disagree vehemently with that, and if you've read that far into my book, you know that I, I do. Have, I know you do. Uh, I, and I do have a theory that sometimes strikes people as counterintuitive. I'll tell you where it comes up the most. And we did set, we did um, salons in New York and in Brussels. And they, each time I said this, it led to a fight. Though I think in Brussels, by the time we got far enough into the conversation, people were coming around to my side of things, which is, uh, you know, facial recognition. Some people think, well, we should have, if we're going to use facial recognition, we should use it against a mugshot database. And the last thing we want is some kind of universal database or driver's license databases because, you know, we should go after the people who are criminals. And there are all kinds of problems with that. One is if you want to know who committed a crime, you actually want everybody. You know, terrorists, just to use your example, they're, they're not stupid and they know how to to change course if they if they understand what the detection method is. And so, uh, you know, I don't know that it's your grandmother, but I don't know that it's not or somebody that looks like your grandmother, uh, and we need to be alert to actually solving the problem. The other is what happens when you decide to pick and choose and give that kind of discretion is that you get widespread, huge amounts of discrimination, of racial bias. And there's tons of studies that show this, and the statistics are overwhelming. And you need to have been with me in focus groups in Nashville when we talked about traffic stops with, you know, extremely prominent members of the African-American community who told just bone-chilling stories of what had happened to them. And so the way that you could contain discretion in the bad kind of discretion that leads to bad outcomes in my mind is you either do something to everyone or you randomize, you fully randomize, so that it's, you know, it is your grandmother, and I, sometimes I get, I get wanded to in the whole bit, or you have an evidence-based way to show that this group is the group that you're after and that it's not in the group that you're ignoring. And what you would happen, for example, in, in your hypothetical is you might persuade people that the people that you're after aren't grandmothers from Topeka, uh, but if what you're going to do is stop young Arab-looking or Muslim uh, folks, the fraction of people that are problematic in that group is minuscule. And so what you're doing is you're effectively condemning an entire group of people uh, instead of getting at the people who are really responsible. And what you're doing is you're losing cooperation from the very people you need to actually solve the problem. Could I chime in here? It's Peter again. Um, I think also we're... Yeah, but there's a difference between discretion and profiling. Um, when I was talking about discretion, I'm talking about specifically focusing on people who are, in fact, the active violent shooters. Um, it's a small group. Uh, we, we can pretty much figure out, not perfectly, but, you know, who, who's doing the shooting and, and who's going to get shot in, in a lot of cities. That's very different than the sort of random... Uh, either random searches or profile-based searching, but there, I, I kind of want to support Barry here on two points of that. If we are going to be doing things to some portion of the population, I think perhaps randomly we should do it to other people just so you know what's going on. I think that's important. Um, but the other part, profiling is often justified on grounds of efficiency. And I 
cringe whenever I hear the word efficiency applied to police and courts or, or incarceration. Um, the goal of justice is not to be efficient, it's to be fair. Um, and so we have to ask why, why are we taking these shortcuts and only focusing on certain people? But um, a lot of it does have to do with how targeted is the enforcement and how many other people outside of it uh, are also guilty of, of what we're looking for. Peter, just to follow up um, with what it's like to be on a corner in Baltimore where there's drugs being sold, um, you're getting continuous 911 phone calls to go uh, bust up this corner, um, and you as an officer have to make a decision on how you want to handle it. Um, you have tremendous discretion about how to proceed. Can you talk about what, how you use that discretion and why that discretion is helpful? Well, this I mean this this applies to certainly a pre twenty fifteen Baltimore. Um right now what I'm about to describe doesn't happen and I do believe as a direct result, uh it, among with other factors, uh, it caused you know homicides to almost double, up by two thirds. Um but by and large the I mean uh, the way that you would handle drug calls is you just simply pull up there in a car and people would walk around the block. And it's ultimately unsatisfying, both at a <laughs> violence prevention level and at um, perhaps a policing in a free society level. Um, but it did maintain a certain amount of authority among cops, and it was simply the path of least resistance, and it was largely ritualized. I mean, you wouldn't actually have to have to say anything. Um, and had I more than seven minutes, by the way, the other question I wanted to answer, which I just want to throw out there, is... Um, you know, it is time we end the war on drugs. Uh, this perhaps is a great time to look into that, that why, why we're insisting on policing in the same way. And I believe that battle, a prohibition against drugs, is really the root cause of bad community relations, of a significant chunk of violence. Um, it would be the single easiest fix if we, were, if we were able to regulate the sale of, let me say, bad drugs. And so I would, I mean, it, going, it was like an example from The Wire when The Wire decided to legalize uh, an area uh, to be free from uh, free, free drug traffic. Um, why do you that think... That area was where I policed, by the way. I know. <laughs> so what, what does... Um, well, let me just break the question into a couple parts. First is, is that before drugs were um, such a big issue, before the war on drugs started, we had very similar complaints about the police. We had similar complaints about... Um, racial bias by the police. Um, why do you think that by simply make, legalizing, you know, heroin or crack cocaine, that that would somehow change the dynamics of, the, of that city dynamic? Uh, because right now the, tr the, tra the public uh, drug trade, and, you know, if you can sell drugs in private to your friends and family and coworkers, you know, do it. Uh, that's not where the violence is. It's the public drug dealing. That's the nexus of violence. Because if you're having, if you're involved in an extra legal trade, um, you you can't go to traditional, you know, legal channels to solve your disputes. So violence is inherent uh, to that. Um, one thing about that Amsterdam example, which you know, the brown paper bag for drugs. Um, uh, partly it reflected one of the few very unrealistic parts about the wire that something like that could be kept secret in a police organization. But there's also, it's different than decriminalization. And in some ways I think decriminalization is the worst of both worlds. It's good if it's a path to, to better reform, but the idea that you are saying it is not, we were not going to prosecute this, but we're also taking away the legal authority of police to do something about the quality of life issues. Um, and, and it's a weird middle ground uh, that, that I Again, as a transition, it might be okay, uh, but I'm talking, you can't regulate what you decriminalize. 
and the purpose for the purpose is to get a you know a grip on this but basically replace street corner drug dealers with people in stores we've done it with other drugs now we have a model the only sort of issue is that we still have a puritanical idea that we can't do it because drugs are bad and that's you know, that Larry, can I, can I jump in here? This is Vivek here. Um, yeah, go know, ahead. Yeah, I wanted to just sort of put a finger on one of the undercurrents in this conversation, which, which I think is an, an important undercurrent in the current dialogue and debate around policing as well. I actually agree with most of what's been said. But for the sake of, of putting our finger on a different point of view, I guess there's, there's a clear difference in our attitudes, even in the attitudes of this conversation, to death or injury perpetrated at the hands or let's just say let's just say wrongful victimhood at the hands of a police officer or at the hands of the law versus at the hands of a criminal who is not a police officer or not an agent of the law and i think we have to ask ourselves what it is and i think we have to put a finger on we have to, we have to define what exactly it is that causes us to react differently to the to, to uh, one death at the hands of law enforcement that gives us a different feeling, a different sense of reform that's needed than a multiple of that number of deaths at the hands of potential non-legal actors, but in ways that don't necessarily involve law enforcement. And, and the example I think of is, you know, in the, in the 1990s when let's just say Mayor Giuliani, for example, was cleaning up New York City. The thing that a lot of the black communities wanted wasn't less policing. The civil rights issue, as it was framed, was actually the need for more police, the ways in which certain minority communities were ignored from having the benefits of police protection that communities that were predominantly white or wealthier communities enjoyed. And so I think it's an interesting moment for us to reflect on that history and for us to define for ourselves what is it about a, what is it about a single or a handful of deaths at the wrongful actions of police that causes us to respond in a different way than we do to deaths that are not necessarily at the hands of police, but maybe at the hands of exactly the kinds of criminal, criminal behavior that greater policing would have prevented. And I, and I think we owe it to ourselves to be clear about the answer to that question, because I think that would tell us a lot more about what trade-offs we are or aren't willing to make about the effectiveness of profiling, the effectiveness of empowering police with discretion or not. And, and I'd be very curious what some of the other speakers who do you want to answer that one? their thoughts would have yeah, to say. I'd, lo I'd love to. And I, and I agree. First of all, it's, you know, Peter and I obviously agree a great deal, and I agree with the premise of what Vivek is saying. I'm just not sure I agree with the application. So, um, you know, I say all the time. So, first of all, Vivek's right that you know many of these neighborhoods that we're, we're you know advocates of the defund movement come out of are struggle with a degree of violence and crime that's just unfathomable and um, and has an enormous impact on kids on their education. I mean, it's just heartbreaking, uh, and it needs to be addressed. And what's truly remarkable to me about the defund movement is that you know it's coming out of those neighborhoods. Now, it's naive to think that everybody in those neighborhoods feels that way. You know, I have had friends who, who work in the mayor's office in Chicago who've made the point to me that, you know, they go into those neighborhoods and people want more police, like Vivek said. And the police have to have just screwed it up pretty badly to have gotten to a point where people in those neighborhoods are now begging to defund the police. And I, and I think you have to be 
uh, attuned to just how badly it has been screwed up. And I think, you know, Peter puts his finger on a lot of the reason, which is that cops became invading armies. I mean, they just come rolling. I mean, you all, if you watch The Wire, obviously Larry is, adores it, you know, but there's this truth in terms of they come rolling in in all these cars and they start jacking up everybody they can find. And uh, part of the strategy was let's just jack up people for low-level offenses because then we'll just clear them off the streets. And so all of a sudden everybody's got a criminal record and they can't get work and families don't have their, their, their men at home. Uh, and it was a disaster. It was an absolute and complete disaster. And there is something about, you know, direct answer to Vivek's question, there's something about the state being the perpetrator of violence that gives it an imprimatur that is just different than anything else. And that's the, it's abhorrence to that that has led us to where we are today. I do think that the persistence of the problems of violence and crime in these neighborhoods are what are going to, you know, really challenge or spell the end of the defund movement, because there's got to be some answer to that question. That's what all the city councils members in Minneapolis are being asked right now, which is, you know, what about active shooters and people with guns out on the street? And we need an answer to that. But I, where I just want to disagree, and if you haven't spent time around policing, and I gave a paper to my own faculty where I kind of, we had to give a, an excerpt, so I skipped over this whole part. You, you just cannot be um, uh, naive to the damage that was done by the models of policing that we adopted that have proven to be deeply ineffective. Can I also add one of the models that's often held up as a damaging model is New York City, which, you know, is the biggest crime drop uh, in America, arguably the best police department in America. That, um, and now, because someone was murdered by cops in Minnesota, we're in effect dismantling the NYPD. Um, I find a level of absurdity to that, and I want to point out that though the defund movement may have its origins in certain neighborhoods, the traction and the support for it is coming from a lot of white people who don't live in those neighborhoods and are afraid to go to those neighborhoods. And I find it, a, well, paternalistic is the nicest way I can put it, for people to tell other people how they should be policed. Um, in, in the area I policed in Baltimore, more than 10% of men are murdered in their lifetime. Um, I don't know how a community can function with that. That, to me, trumps every theoretical argument, even about state use of force, as important as it is. But the violence is so, the magnitude of the violence is so large. And then, I mean, I was, have, I was discussing it with a college professor in Princeton, and I said, why didn't you first try and defund police in Princeton? Um, before taking it on the road to East New York. Um, there is no community that's advocating def the, where the majority of people advocate defund for their community. And I think that's important to keep in mind. It's, it's making guinea pigs out of those most vulnerable, as there is a long history of doing. And, and to be clear, I want to bring Rob Kirsten into that conversation. Rob, do you want to maybe apply the concepts of political partisanship overlay on that process and and social norms as to like, which elites to listen to in determining whether to defund police or not and how that process works kind of like your framework Rob you're still on mute if you're responding who was who, who, that addressed to Rob Kurzban Rob's line has dropped Okay, so we'll move on. So, Larry, if, if I can just, if I can just sort of ask, I wanted to clarify that it's not a, it's not necessarily a view that I'm offering, but it, but it's an, but it's a question, and I think it's a question we need to answer with clarity. Where for our justice system in the courts in the United States, we have an effective principle which says that we would rather let ten guilty people go rather than to convict one innocent person. And I, I think that there's something to be said for the power of that principle, which which requires someone to be convicted. Beyond 
beyond reasonable doubt by a jury of their peers. Okay. I think we have reached a moment where we need to come to a similar value judgment about the way in which we think about our policing system, not our court system, but a policing system where we answer the question of how many innocent lives will we accept being sacrificed on the streets of our poorest and and most difficult communities in order to accept one wrongful death at the hands of a police officer. That is not a view, that is a question, but I think it is a question that we are evading, talking around the issue through the defund movement and everything else around it, when in fact I think at the heart of that question relies the vacuum of an answer that doesn't have the same level of clarity as we do in our court system, where we say you must be you must be proven you know, guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. Okay, we all live by that principle. I think the absence of that principle in policing is what begs for an answer. And I think there's folks more knowledgeable than I on this call on, on the merits, but I'd love to hear your perspective on what the answer to that question would be is how many lives at the hands of, a, of criminals in these communities are we willing to accept in return for one wrongful death at the hands of police? Because I think that's the heart of what, what ultimately we have to make a decision around as a trade-off for our society. But it's, an, it, but it's an absolutely false choice, and that's the point that I want to make. And so first, with the sort of 10, you know, guilty people go free so that one innocent is not convicted, I mean, that bears no relationship to our criminal adjudication system whatsoever. And if you live anywhere in and around the world plea bargaining, you are perfectly well aware of that. And I heartily recommend Emily Bazelon's book on this, which is just a phenomenal read. And, and you know, in engrossing, it, like, captures you. You want to read it, and it, it teaches you a lot about that. So in policing, I think the problem is the modality of policing, and that's what we're trying to fix with our project in Chicago. So what every police chief will tell you in any urban area, I mean, and every cop, I think Peter will amen this, is somebody gets shot, nobody will cooperate. Nobody, people don't call the cops when shots are fired. Nobody will uh, step up and help the cops solve the crime. Often people know who it is and they don't do it. And it's because, A, they're incredibly alienated from the police, and B, they're afraid because we have not succeeded in restoring order in those communities. And so there has been a breakdown because of the way that we police. So what we're trying to do in Chicago is exactly what Peter has said, which is get the cops out of the cars, build relationships with the community, co-produce, to use the, the, the word from um, Obama's 21st Century Task Force, co-produce public safety so that the police and the communities are solving their problems together. And again, we're early in a pilot, though the PDs decided to roll it out over the city and the mayor has decided that. And what we're showing, I mean, this is not all public yet, uh, and it's preliminary results, is first, the cops love it. Like, they are so much happier not being an, seen as an alien invading army, but working with people in the community. And the people we've got working with them in the community were not like the ones that always wanted to show up to work with the cops. There are people that hated the cops. But they're learning together that they can identify problems and solve them, whether it's a drug house or whether it's, you know, just a parking zoo around the public school. Uh, safe corridors to get kids to school, whatever it is. And so I, I think what we need, and I, you know, I would think folks listening on this call would understand this the best, is to use our noggins to figure out new ways to do things instead of just doing them the old ways that don't work. But, Bear, you're avoiding, I think you're, you're, those, that's a, you know, good strategies, good tactics, but you're, you're avoiding the question that was raised, which I think is a good question. Um, there, we don't talk about collateral damage in policing, but inevitably there is because cops make mistakes. Um, and when we have seen reactions that are based solely on cops killing someone, it is followed by less policing, uh, usually a reduction then in 
complaints against police and police-involved shootings because cops aren't doing as much. They're not being proactive, and more people die. And I think there is a trade-off there that we do need to address because I think that there, that is sort of a crux of the matter. Um, and I'm pessimistic now about reform because... You know, Minneapolis, as you probably know, but, you know, went through all the de-escalation training, the, the, the you know, the, the, the implicit bias training, all the working with the community. And you know what? Maybe it worked. I don't know. But it didn't work well enough because George Floyd was murdered. And if, if we require perfection um, from policing, if that's the standard, we're doomed. Um, at some point, we also have to accept that bad things are going to happen because it's a big country. So we have to aim for better, not perfect. And I don't know how we Richard, how we get there. This is Richard Fontana. I just wanted to add, um, offer a, a parallel perspective here because I hear the frustration and the why are there why is there outrage over the unfortunate death of, of one or two or however many people at the hands of the police, but not the many more at the hands of of, of criminals and so forth. And uh, there's an international perspective to all of this. I mean, right now, or at least very recently, there have been protests all over the world about police brutality in the United States. Some of it is also resonating in terms of the countries that these are taking, taking but people are chanting George, George Floyd's name in Australia and New Zealand all across Europe. At the same time, China's got a million Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in concentration camps. Burma has, you know, raped and pillaged villages in the Rohingya. Uh, the North Koreans have the worst uh, human rights record in the world and all these other things. There's no protest for any of that kind of stuff. There's nobody in the streets. Nobody knows the names of any of those victims. And so the question is, why is the United States held to a standard so different than these other countries? And, you know, part, there's a number of answers. One is dominance of the United States and so forth. But a lot of it is the perceived gap between the standard that is expected from the United States, which is one based on freedom and human rights and civil rights and, and, and liberties and all this stuff and the actual practice. And that causes outrage. And I think here, too, the gap between what is expected of the police, rightfully or, long, or wrongly, um, and the practice is what's causing the outrage, not uh, you know, no one's particularly surprised, however terrible it may be when violent criminals act violently, but they are very outraged and surprised when the police do. Um, it may go along with it, but I don't think that you can change the mentality other than kind of shaking your fist at the world. You're, you're stuck with the with the with the, the the reaction to violation of a perceived standard. Yeah, I think, Richard, hey, the thing that's. The thing that's different about that is I think one is an intra-American norms question where we are a liberal democracy in a way that, that North Korea and China are not, and we are proud of that, and part of being proud of that is holding ourselves accountable to live by the standards of that. But I think there's a separate question that is within that liberal democracy. Is it a failure of our ability to deliver civil rights to communities who need them to provide them the level of protection that we also f provide to, to minority communities as we do to predominantly white communities, to poor communities as we do to predominantly wealthy communities? That itself can be framed as a rights-based question on a basis of community rights. And I think what makes this question more difficult is trading that off versus the, versus the deaths at the hands of, of a you know, a, a police officer, which will be 
the collateral damage of greater policing, no doubt, uh, in the same way as collateral damage of an interstate highway system is a certain number of deaths that the National Transportation Safety Bureau accepts every year. Here, it's even a question of not just efficiency versus lives, but lives versus lives. And I think in that question, I don't have an answer, but I do think that running from the question, I think, is going to leave us with an unsatisfying answer for the next decade unless we come up with a lucid principle for exactly how we trade off that effectively calculus. I wonder, um, and I don't know who to ask this question to, but maybe someone could jump in. You know, um, when you had the beginning of the Arab Spring, we had the Tunisian uh, fruit merchant uh, self-immolate himself because of his inability to work with the government to get what he wanted, which was a license to sell his fruit. and was constantly being ticketed and just couldn't take it anymore. And then when the riot started, the regime fell. Do you think that um, the George Floyd um, reaction is it really related to George Floyd, or it does reflect some other anger that's festering? Is is it related to the lockdown? Is it related to the view of of, of the of the citizen in the state? Is it really about police brutality, or is it is it just something else, just like it was for the fruit merchant? I mean, I'll vary. I'll I'll just take a guess. And by the way, I just want to be perfectly clear. I I couldn't agree more that the. Um, carnage in American cities is just completely unacceptable. My my former colleague, who's now at Princeton, Patrick Sharkey, has wrote a wonderful book on Easy Peace about the impact of gun violence. And it's if you've never stopped and focused on it, it's it's you know it's gun wrenching. One of the most interesting pieces about and Patrick would be great to have on this call sometime was research that showed that you could track where shootings happen and then. Just because tests, are, you know, testing of students is completely randomized around that, there's no correlation whatsoever. You could see that in concentric circles coming out from the gun violence, test scores improved or they dropped as you got closer, and uh, and you know, profound effects on education. So I, I agree that the question of how we address that problem uh, is critical. My instinct from spending a lot of time over the last few weeks hearing from people out on the streets, from advocates for national groups that are trying to be supportive or not supportive, from the police, is that we are seeing a confluence of, you know, maybe four factors. So one is certainly the, you know, we were here after the Kerner Commission, we were here after Ferguson, and here we are again with the deaths of, uh, uh, of black Americans uh, because of the police. And I will point out, by the way, that the deaths are small. The uses of force are, are much greater than that, and that's the number to be thinking about. The second, I think, is just the lockdown. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's affected people profoundly, and they're antsy and uncomfortable and unhappy, and particularly in affected communities, people have been ravaged more by the disease and lost more jobs, and uh, poverty is even more of a problem. I think the third is, I think there's just generalized frustration about the administration and the direction of the country, and a lot of the folks that are out on the streets are reflecting that, and this has just happened to be the issue that, that triggered them. So when I, I'm a special advisor to the New York AG on her investigation of, uh, Governor Cuomo ordered an investigation of the NYPD's conduct in the protests, and, you know, some number of the witnesses who testified from us were part of an incredibly organized um, effort to be out in the streets and protesting and then, you know, jail support after people were out. So I think it's this confluence of things. I don't think it would have played out exactly as it has were it not for all of these things happening at one time. Okay. I'm going to try to take this conversation in a slightly different direction. Um, and I want to 
talk about a little bit about what Vivek was talking about with the stakeholder capitalism, and I would try to bring in David Stellings and Josh Sovin in that relationship. And I can imagine right now they're thinking to themselves, how is this going to happen? But David, I'll start with you. Um, you know, you're in the class action uh, business, and oftentimes the, the people on the other side of the class action is big business. And big business is always trying to say that what they're doing is, is the best uh, is, is trying to create the best possible worlds, and everything that you're basically doing is inconsistent with that belief, and that they've somehow been misled their customers or not agreed to do what they've wanted to do. How do you think about the next comments about stakeholder capitalism and the role of class action lawyers to kind of redefine the role of uh, big business? It's a complicated issue. Um, first of all, I would I would dial back a little this idea that class action lawyers think that every business uh, doesn't serve any function except uh, uh, cheating customers. I think it's the very small minority of businesses that at least intentionally do that. And what we're looking for, I mean, there are not enough class action lawyers to uh, handle all the cases if every business is is somehow crooked. Um, You know, we talked within my firm a couple of years ago about this notion that in shareholder litigation, um, you know, where a company says something or does something uh, misrepresents what the facts are and, and results in, in the um, share price going down and people lose money and then it turns out that, or, or it goes up and turns out that, that it should not have gone up. We talked about how the um, taking into account ethical considerations, taking into account what companies should focus on beyond just maximizing shareholder return, which is what a lot of public companies uh, strive to do, how that would affect our practice, how that would affect uh, society in general. And, and I, th- there were very mixed feelings, even within the firm, even among partners within a class action practice that litigates against companies that commit securities fraud because it, it opens up, I, I, I mean, we had a similar concern to, I, I don't remember whether it was Rebecca or someone else who was concerned about this, but, but, but do we really want these folks, and I, I, I think it's fair to say these guys, because generally it's men who are making these decisions to decide what's important, what's societally appropriate, what's societally beneficial and uh, use the weight of the corporation to push in that direction. So I think, you know, it sounds good superficially to inject um, ethics into, into that formula, but I think it, we would have to do it very carefully. That said, I think it's really critical for companies to think more broadly um, about making society better um, from a social perspective in terms of improving diversity within their own ranks, in terms of um, improving how women and minorities and um, historically uh, disadvantaged groups do and are represented at different um, levels of, of the companies, especially at the, at the top of those corporations. Josh, do you want to comment, having worked at the Department of Justice at the FTC trying to limit the scope of large business, how you think about that problem as a government solution to kind of minimize business power, particularly as it relates to the consumer experience? 
Yeah, two quick points on this, Larry. And um, I think we've known each other, we've clearly known each other for a while because I thought some variation of this question might be coming um, after I heard the great comments on stakeholder capitalism. So two points. Um, first, you know, we all like to think of our profession as particularly important, but the level of omnipotence that is being assigned to antitrust and superpowers right now is way out of proportion of reality. And so it's being, you know, held up uh, by the left and the right as this therapeutic for all that ails the economy, you know, on the consumer side, on the labor side, on the innovation side, on the, you know, on every side you can imagine. And it, it's just not up to it. It's a really crude discipline that does, is well suited to preventing structural disaster meaning mergers to monopoly, which are then going to produce a lot of regulation, which is invariably going to be worse, whatever your politics. But it, it just can't, it, it can't get rid of, you know, fundamental economic trends. And I think, you know, whatever side you're on, people are going to realize that over the next two or three years. But to the stakeholder capitalism point and big tech, if I can pivot to that for just a minute, that I think is really important and explains also what's going on. Big tech, I think, as not in a critical way, is the opposite of stakeholder capitalism. What makes those companies what they are and why we're all sort of focusing on them is, again, whatever your politics, they have bulldozed, you know, traditional models, not just of the corner bookstore, which gets the attention, but of some of the most powerful, you know, Fortune 100 companies in the world. And they have bulldozed communications. They have bulldozed the way people talk to each other, and all of that is causing stakeholder capitalism system shock within D.C. and within state capitals, and it's that force that uh, I believe, you know, consciously or subconsciously emanating, you know, all this incredible flow of resources to this sort of work. Uh, I, I've never seen competition policy through antitrust fundamentally alter that structure, uh, and I don't expect to see it now, but I think it's that psychology which is driving, you know, this critical scale of resources now devoted to figuring out how to, ways to bring lawsuits and to um, pass legislation. So I don't think Amazon is one of your customers, so maybe I would pick on that as an example. Um, so. You know, here's a company that did not grow via acquisition. It's grown organically. It seems to go into new businesses on a daily basis. It's challenged, and it has been destroying its competition left and right. We had Scott Galloway on the call a few months ago talk about how it, this could not be a better COVID environment, could not be a better environment for Amazon to continue to gain share and gain customers. Um, but that being said, it, it although consumer surplus is enormous, um, we should expect some sort of pushback by uh, the retail establishment, which desperately wants to save itself. How do you think the um, how do you think about the retail establishment wanting or people trying to reduce Amazon's power uh, in that context? Completely get it. It's completely natural, and depending on Amazon is not one of my clients. Um, you can either, depending on what side you sit on, you can view it as using antitrust to push back a monopolist, or you can use it as old-world business models engaged in rent-seeking um, through the government to try and keep less efficient cost structures around. And I'm not opining on, you know, which one. M my point, so I, I understand and appreciate and 
um, follow the line of argument. My point is there's no example really in the last, you know, sort of five decades of antitrust getting at those issues. You know, you can decide to turn Amazon into a utility if you want and regulate it. I think that's probably a pretty good, pretty bad idea and is going to produce a lot of unintended negative consequences. But looking for some five, ten-year massive, um, you know, government antitrust suit followed, you know, by massive amounts of class action work, I just don't think is going to get people what they want. It may make them feel better for a little bit, but you're not likely to hold back, um, you know, these very powerful economic forces. The I want to bring Mike Dovey into the conversation. Mike, one of the things that was talked about as a potential antitrust legislation is preventing micro uh, acquisitions by large uh, corporations in the field. You work for a entrepreneurial startup uh, tequila business, and I imagine that your exit is going to be a sale to one of these larger uh, alcohol firms. Is is that really the the plan? And if so, if if for example we prohibit those sort of acquisitions is a fundamentally question your entire business model and how should we think about entrepreneurship uh, in a world where um, small acquisitions are not, not allowed. Good luck, Mike. Well, <clears throat> thanks. It's, I mean, it would be one of the options, right? One of the exit plans, but not necessarily the only one. So, yeah, it limits optionality, and there are, there are several different models that we have that we could kind of employ um, kind of separate from that. But as far as the kind of the, the underlying principle, I mean, I think it's pretty flawed to think that microacquisitions in any way, shape, or form are anti-competitive. Um, having been on the other side of this discussion, working for a large company, Constellation Brands, running the spirits business for Constellation Brands and taking a look at investments and acquisitions of startup companies, um, you know, it was, it was all about kind of like broadening the base of business and it wasn't, none of those inherently, the, the number of acquisitions we would have to make for either our position, broadly speaking, or in a specific category to have such a degree of concentration and share that, that there would be any sort of you know, competitive antitrust issue would have been impractical. You're, you're talking hundreds or thousands of acquisitions given the size of them, you know, relative to kind of like what the competitive set is. So to me, it just seems like in many ways sure, a good academic what, discussion, but not really practical. Just it's, it's one random question. We spoke um, off this line, but together about craft beer business being under a, a lot of stress right now and how that's going to consolidate. Do you want to just take a second to talk about that? Yeah, well, I think that, I think anything right now, just at this moment in time, there's just there's going to be continued consolidation, which is also, I guess, an argument for um, a the argument against prohibiting microacquisitions because you're going to allow a lot of people that have fewer exit plans then, and, and bankruptcy might be their best one if you limit the ability for them to be acquired. But you have places like uh, or categories like you know microbreweries who um, there was there was an over proliferation of those over the past 10 years or so. Uh, there's already been a shakeout of that. Um, situations like we have with coronavirus where they were, a lot of these places were hurt because their direct-to-consumer business that was, um, that was running through their kind of bar and restaurant business, a lot of these had walk-in traffic that was shut down just like any other bar or restaurant was. They were hurt by that. So you have a lot of businesses that are going to be struggling, and the, the undercapitalized ones clearly will be the ones that go first. But that's not just beer. We'll see it in, in you know, small wineries, high-end wineries. Um, at this point, there's going to be a glut. 
um, in that. I mean, everybody right now has been thrown a curveball. If you're a microbrewer, you know, you've lost, you've lost a lot of your business. I mean, the other end of the spectrum is just from a production standpoint, can't find cans in the world these days. And the guys who are, uh, have caused that to happen are the big guys, and they're soaking up the supply. So, again, further pressure on the little guys. It's coming from a surprising number of sources. So, again, I think that it's really critical to give people the broadest range of options and not regulate against that. Okay. Um, I promised our listeners that we would end on a note of optimism. I just wanted to go around the room and highlight something optimistic that we may have missed from the call. Um, COVID-19 generally brings out the worst in us. So uh, what can we think that's positive? I'll start with David Stellings. David, what do, we, what do you think that you're optimistic about? I'm optimistic that the court system is, has, has continued to run generally and will continue to run well uh, through this pandemic, no matter how long it lasts. Uh, judges and their staff um, and lawyers uh, have been remarkably active during this period when every office was closed, every courthouse was closed, cases are still moving forward, people are still able to seek justice, and people are, um, are getting justice. Joshua? Yeah, to pick up on that, um, and under uh, a non-covered topic is the fact that the federal workforce is not in their offices, they're working from home, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, they have been uh, able to operate far more efficiently and you know, consistently than I think the body politic would ever have thought possible, uh, given resource constraints. You know, whatever you think about what they're doing from a substantive standpoint, they've done a really good job uh, keeping the trains rolling, and you know, I think they get credit for that. Peter? Optimism, you one for me, huh? I've never been so yeah, optimistic in my life. Um, I really have been enjoying the clean air when cars <laughs> went out. Does that count? Depends where you are. Well, in New York, it was, <laughs> the skies were very blue, and that's about all I'm optimistic about. All right, Barry, what do you got? You know, I think once uh, we all calm down a bit and the rhetoric calms down, we may see common ground between the folks on the defund side who really feel that, uh, that they've been deprived of certain social services and the cops who think that they've been sent to deal with a lot of problems that are really ought not to be their primary obligation. And we may start to see some reforms that have been long in the long needed. So that's, I, I tended to, to be in Peter's direction on optimism, but that's the, that's what I got. Okay. Um, Richard. Well, the first half of this year and the every country for itself combined with the Chinese reaction and that of some other countries and with the United States looking so internally for obvious reasons, I think it was reminded a lot of people around the world and hopefully some Americans too, um, that the world is generally better off when the United States with its power and interests is in a leadership role rather than following or absent. And so uh, the opportunity to reassert that kind of thing lies almost entirely within us. The demand signal for it's pretty high. Michael? I'll take it from a consumer perspective. You know, we've all been through a lot. And, you know, I take a look at it through, the, again, the lens of the luxury business. Our products are, are non-essential. And uh, the rise in the spending that we've seen on this varied rapidly. And again, let's hope that it's pretty consistent to me as an indicator of broad consumer optimism. And my hope is that population is right. Absolutely. Vivek? 
Yeah, I think the virus gives us something that we haven't had in nearly 20 years since 9-11, which is a common enemy. And I would say that, as best we know, COVID affects us, whether we're male or female, whether we're black or white, whether we're gay or straight or Democrat or Republican, you go down the list. It's true that the virus tends to disproportionately impact older people, but even that reveals something we share in common, which is that if we're not over 60, then we certainly hope to be one day. And so if I'm to take an optimistic note, I think it ought to remind us that our greatest vulnerabilities and our greatest concern ought to not be the microaggressions that one group commits against another, but rather the macroaggressions that we face together as one people and that our greatest vulnerabilities are truly shared. That's very nice. Um, I just want to, people who may have joined us late, I want to remind uh, those listeners that um, I'm taking July 4th off. Uh, there will be no call next week, but we'll restart on Sunday, July 12th. I will be co-hosting a call with uh, Stanford Law Professor Rick Banks, and the topic will be what happens next with regard to race relations. I'll be sending an email out in the next couple of days with an ability to, so you can invite your friends. I think it's going to be a spectacular event. Um, and with that, I say uh have a great afternoon. Thank you to my speakers for participating. You were terrific. And to my listeners for listening. You can, uh, you can hang up now. The call is over. Thank you so much, and goodbye.